Hi, I'm Mark Loftus, and in this podcast, I'm speaking with editor Paul Trewartha, who recently cut the feature-length documentary, The Sparks Brothers. Paul, thanks for joining us. I just be here. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So uh, I saw the film, and uh, it's, it's incredible the amount of work that goes into it. Just in the opening first few minutes, there's so many different edits uh, to set up the introduction of it. A- how did you get involved in this? Had you worked with the director before? What was you know, the connection to it? Um, yeah, I, I've worked with Edgar and Naira Park for over 10 years now, um, originally making sort of behind the scenes content for them. And it's quite interesting because, you know, I would, I would flip flop between sort of uh, doing feature docs and then they would get back in touch and say, oh, we've got these additional content, you know, sort of pieces. And, and it was always such a pleasure to work with them. So, um, yeah, it's, it's good because over that sort of 10 year period, um, I think uh, Edgar and I have found a, a good shorthand um, and, you know, sort of a sort of shared aesthetic. So, uh, you know, I think in terms of, of Sparks Brothers, you know, from the moment I came on board, you know, we were singing off the same hymn sheet and um, talking the same language in that regard. And just uh, it was a, a real pleasure. Okay, when did you get involved? Obviously, this is a a long project. I would imagine it's probably more than a year in the making. How Mm. far back does it go for your initial involvement? And were you working on it steadily or were there breaks in between and you were working on other things? What was the timeline? Yeah. So I, I, I've been on it since 2019, um, and there had been a little bit of um, edit work that had taken place before, and there had been an assistant that was actually sort of breaking down rushes before I came on board. Originally, when I was asked to um, get involved, I was finishing up on a uh, feature doc called Ronnie's, which is about Ronnie Scott, and I wasn't able to uh, to help out at that point. But as soon as I became free, I was able to flip straight across and um, and then we kicked off in earnest at that point. And, you know, there was a huge amount of content and absolutely a vast amount of content. Um, I mean, for all feature doc projects, you expect, uh, you know, a huge amount of content. In fact, it's problematic if you don't have it. Um, and so, uh, but this was pretty exceptional. Um, there were a, a large number of interviewees. There were 80 interviewees. Um, they were all very substantial interviews as well. There were 11 interviews with Ron and Russell. There was like over 18 hours of interview content with Ron and Russell alone. So, you know, they'd recorded in, you know, five cities, like LA, New York, London, Mexico, Tokyo. Um, and the archive team had done an incredible job of actually, they used a system called FileMaker, and they had actually... Um, uh, broken out a lot of the archive and given it, you know, uh, a, a, they had like a coded system. And so that was all very organized. It's just that there was so much of it. And and so, you know, the original task always is to find a way to uh, make that vast quantity of archive accessible so that you have what you want, you know, when you need it sort of thing. And um so that was the original task. And and then once we had sort of got through that, then obviously the, the fun begins. And um, and then we started cutting sequences, which was you know, a real pleasure because yeah, sparks are fantastic. So yeah. yeah, a pleasure from start to finish. I want to talk a little bit about that, the structure of the uh, film. Uh, obviously, the first question is, where do you even... Uh, where do you even start with it? And when you, when I looked at the structure of it from a viewer standpoint, I saw there was the introduction. I saw there was a little bit of a history with the setbacks. Uh, 
you know, that they experience. And then I saw that you use their albums as kind of a chronological timeline to get them from, mm. you know, the introduction all the way to current time. How did you approach it, knowing that there was so much media and such a large timeline? From an editing standpoint, where did you start? Yeah, so, I mean, certainly um, the, the the way that I uh, break down content, um, interview content, is much more thematic in its nature. So although... Um, you know, Edgar always had a very clear idea that he wanted to do justice to every single album. I think he felt that it's exactly what every hardcore Sparks fan would want to see, to be able to forge connection album for album, which was only going to be possible um, if we did actually track it that way. I think Sparks are particularly unique because their sound changes so drastically from album to album. I think if you were to take somebody who is completely uninitiated and and start flipping, okay, here we're discussing the first album, now a song from the fifth, and now a song from the tenth album, it would be extremely difficult for anybody to be able to grapple with you know, how their sound developed over time and, yeah. and, and the nuances of, of that aspect of their, you know, sort of artistic career. And so I think that and the fact that, you know, a lot of people had approached Ron Russell and said, historically, you know, we'd love to tell your story. We're really interested in the 70s. And, you know, there was a, a peak point in the 80s. And it's like, yes, but we are still very much an ongoing asset. We're still moving forward. We're still a developing band. And you know that every single album they bring out is is brand new and dynamic and acoustically different. And so there's a real risk of actually sort of, you know, just making it like a retrospective, something that they clearly have no interest in. You know, they specific, mm-hmm. we even specifically use a quote from Ron in, in the film saying that he hates looking back, you know, and we, there, there we were doing a job of looking back. So we needed to make sure that we were doing justice but to the whole career. Um, but, you know, certainly, you know, my breakdown, yes, there was a chronological element to it, but there was definitely a thematic element to it where we were talking about different facets of their personality. And, and it's, quite, it's quite interesting, really, because I think a lot there's this sort of, it's very easy to look at a film that's chronological and think, oh, it's very simple in its design because it's chronological. But actually, interestingly, when you think about the arc of a film, you want to sort of introduce themes at a pertinent point, themes that are going to resonate with the audience at a pertinent point. And actually, in some respects, being chronological actually does make that quite difficult because there may be facets of their personality that are highlighted at various points. And so it's how do you then draw those elements together to convey a point at a relevant point while still being true to the chronological aspect of it. So, yeah, I, 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 it, was a, it, was, it was a challenge, you know, in terms of, you know, structurally because it was chronological and because there was such a, a lot of, um, you know, footage available, but it was, it was a good challenge. How did you work? What were some of the first sequences that you worked on and what were the last sequences? Was the uh, was the wrap up, the conclusion, the last sequence that you did just because of the nature of it? Or were you working out of uh, out of like a, a uh, linear you know, structure? Yeah, so there were uh, there's a couple of things there, really. I mean, the, the first sequences that we cut were the ones which we knew were would potentially be good elements to be treated with um, the sort of 3D animation techniques. 
Mm-hmm. So Joseph's animation techniques, um, uh, which are beautiful, but time consuming and require storyboarding and a lot of back and forth. So we originally highlighted um, elements that we sort of felt would be great for those segments and uh, started to have those sort of conversations. And so I would actually sort of build a sound design and interview content to cover uh, those sections. And uh, and then we kick off that process. So that was the very first thing we tucked into. Um, the end sequence, actually, it's interesting because the content that you feel, because you've actually done a diligent process of actually breaking down all of the rushes, um, great comments that would be perfect for intro and outro sequence have been drawn together quite early on. So you, it's not like you need to have gone through everything before you know what would be great to actually sort of round the film up or kick the film off, because that that all comes out of the... Um, you know, breaking down the rushes um, and getting a good overview of of, uh, of, of of all of the rushes and all of the assets. Obviously, it's a live um, process. And so, you know, things change and bend and flex over time. And, you know, you know, certainly the end sequence, it, it developed in, you know, right up until the last moments, really. Um, for example, you know, it was quite late on where we just wanted to reiterate the, you know, themes about them being brothers at the back end and, you know, sort of basically come back to the idea. You know, we sort of, there's a lot of prominence given to, you know, what it was like growing up together. Um, at the beginning of the film. And it was just really nice to revisit some of those themes at the back end, you know, having worked together for so long, isn't it incredible that they've got this shorthand and it was an opportunity to revisit some of the beautiful archive and recontextualize some of that beautiful archive in, in, in the context of, you know, the, the, the 50 years. And so, um, you know, that was, that was quite a, that came in pretty late, that sequence there um, with, you know, all that, uh, with the tracks underneath that. So, you know, the, the other thing, the other point to make is the fact that actually because we knew we were going to do justice to the album, the, the, the first thing we did was we actually did cut a sequence of um, an, of a natural length for every single album. So there was actually, you know, full working edits for every single album up to sort of 45 minutes long or, you know, and um, for a specific album alone. And then when we were able to string those back to back, we had this hugely long cut that was, you know, still it was it wasn't watchable because it was so long, but actually it was yeah. very watchable in chunks. And then we were able to distill from those albums what we felt would be uh, fantastic to use as a platform to investigate a certain thematic um, a point and and that's how we were able to draw those out and then shape the arc that way so yeah it was um it was a nice way to work and it, it was a different way to work for me in that regard but it was um it was it was it worked well i would imagine that there was a ton of media there and like you said just keeping it to the two minutes and you know two hours and 15 or 20 minutes that it was mm. must have been a challenge because of how much media you had how were you managing it and how much media were you did you have access to locally either on an external drive or your on the uh, workstation that you're working on at any time and were you challenged with just managing so many hours of footage with all these interview subjects all the archival stuff and everything yeah i think the thing about um premiere is fantastic because it it gives you such a sort of um degree of flexibility and it's so quick to import assets that you know you you i think it's what's hugely important when you're working in a um a program that is so forgiving 
is that you have to be incredibly diligent yourself. You have to be extremely um, organized um, in how things are brought in, where they're located. Um, and so there, although I was on a shared storage and there were certainly times through the edit where there were um, myself and another editor called Nick um, and we were working together and we were sharing content and then and then it would pull back and then there was a time where later on um, as lockdown happened and I was I took everything away on an external drive and then I pulled right back to my suite so it was it was it, we worked in many different ways throughout the process but I think the most important thing is just staying on top of the project and making sure it doesn't bloat and you know keep thinning it down and streamlining it and you know sort of <laughs> a lot of rendering as you're going along because the timeline is so long so you don't want to put too much pressure on the system mm -hmm. you know you've got to sort of um, alleviate pressure on the system so you can continue to work in the way that you want to work and I mean it because we I, I, you know, I approached it that way, you know, it was quite happy with a, you know, sort of a six hour timeline that was, you know, ha had, you know, 20 tracks deep in terms of audio, you know, 12 tracks high in terms of, you know, from the video content. Um, and, and just, you know, as long as you were continually mixing down and making sure there weren't duplicate clips in the project and all of those sorts of things. And, um, so yeah, organization is definitely the key. And then that would allow you to just be as creative as you wanted to be really. How, how about the use of music? Obviously, there's a lot of uh, performance footage uh, from their archives over the years and stuff, but then you have access to their library that you could mm -hmm. use for underbeds of interviews and stuff. What was your uh, mentality as far as using their music or staying away from it just because there's so much available to you? Yeah, so, I mean, there are tracks that are used that aren't Sparks tracks. Generally, quite mm -hmm. early on, we talk about the inspiration for the band. But from the, you know, the, the, a fun, you know, sort of in the earlier sections of the film, you can sort of see there, there are sort of little uh, sort of nods and winks to tracks that reference themes that we're discussing uh, that might be slightly out of time. However, as we move through, you know, album for album, obviously all of the tracks are pertinent to that album. I mean, the interesting thing is just how much we did use. Um, there were 108 music tracks in the final edit alone. Um, and so I know for the, the music supervisor, Gary Welsh, he sort of said that the largest quantity of tracks he's ever licensed for a, a single production. And, and BMG said the same, actually. They said they hadn't ever licensed so many tracks for one production. And I mean, you know, Edgar's just got a, a, an inexhaustible enthusiasm for, you know, sort of content, whether it's interview content or, you know, obviously the music. And so I think, you know, we all really, you know, sort of, really benefited and um, were inspired by his enthusiasm. You know, mm -hmm. there was, we, we had the gift of having so many great comments from so many great people. And, and the lovely thing about actually the contributors, they seem like quite an eclectic bunch, but I think it's pretty obvious that actually, you know, the common thread for all of them, the common theme for all the contributors is the fact that I absolutely love Sparks, you know, these are people that historically Edgar has discussed Sparks with and they've been like, oh, yeah, I love Sparks, you know. And so when he thought about making the documentary, he called them up and like, you know, I know you love Sparks. Are you prepared to talk about them? And of course they were because, you know, people who love Sparks really, really love Sparks and, um, and you know, would love, you know, love nothing more than talking about them. So um, yeah. I think it's, uh, it weaves a rich, a rich tapestry, actually, of, of, you know, interesting voices and all, you know, with a common interest in Sparks.
And and stylistically, the interviews were black and white. And I know mm. that some of the title cards there to separate these different chapters, uh, those gray title cards with kind of the description, was that Edgar's decision, like coming into the edit, that you knew that, okay, all of these interviews with, you know, the Go-Go's and Beck and all of these people were going to be poor presented in a black and white format and that you're going to use these title cards as kind of chapter points. Yeah. So the, the interviews themselves uh, are actually, you know, they're, they're, I mean, they're beautiful. Jake did an incredible sh- job of, of, of setting those up and lighting them. And, and, you know, every single interview uh, at the end of the, the interview itself actually had like a, a dynamic lighting introduction that you see quite often people have portraits and, you know, we've used those, you know, pretty often um that actually i think the thing is that actually there's a sort of a collage element to the film we employ animation where we feel it's, it would benefit the narrative we employ a lot of i mean you see there's a lot of contact sheets in there which i, I was able to sort of take in at high resolution and actually animate on the timeline and in that way i was actually able to you know, sort of, it was a, a there was a direct relationship between the track that was playing under it. And if there, if, if I had a contact sheet with 25 stills on it, I was mm-hmm. able to, you know, put ad edits on the beat and, and actually sort of um, line up what I would quite often do is line up the, you know, a, a, a contributor within the, uh, the, the, the contact sheet themselves and find a content or some sort of continuity within the frame so that the contact sheet is moving around the person who is being featured, which just mm-hmm. sort of brings those contact sheets to life. And that's something that I can't think of an easier way for that to happen than, in, you know, than, than the way we did it. And, um, and all of those archival elements, because we actually worked them up to that degree, including the graphics. I mean, the graphics were all created on the timeline in Premiere and, um, you know, imported in and, and worked up in that way. I, I just did all of those. And then we'd done so many of those and all of the lower thirds that it got to a point that when we sort of came to the form and thinking of the back end and the online, that we decided that the best thing to do would just be to play them out. And so mm-hmm. all of those graphical elements that you see in the film, you know, have actually gone straight through from the offline, through play out, straight through the grade, and they are the final graphics. So, um yeah, that was that was, and I mean, I I love working with graphics and animation. I actually studied animation originally, so it's kind of um, I have a lot of time for it and a lot of love for it. So it's nice to be able to have some fun with those elements as well. Now, knowing that this was going to be a theatrical release and dealing with probably some of the archival stuff that may not be the resolution of the newly shot footage. What what resolution were you working at, or did you have in mind that knowing that the ultimate release would be theatrical? Were you thinking about like 2K? Was it beyond HD? Obviously, was it more than that 4K? Yeah, so we were always we always we decided quite early on that 2K was the optimum format for us because then we wouldn't have to push standard def material up too far, um, and and again just because of the sheer quantity of stuff that had been shot. I think, you know, there's a temptation to use a full sensor and then all of a sudden you're receiving, you know, hundreds of hours of 8K footage. Um, And, and, you know, in terms of the the interviews themselves, I mean, it was the sensor of the camera that was, you know, they actually used a red camera that actually had a black and white sensor to try and get as much information from that sensor as possible. And so the interviews were actually shot black and white. We didn't make those black and white. That's how they sort of came into the edit. So, um, and that's how they were shot. So, you know, and it's those sorts of bold decisions that I think distinguish, you know, you know, great filmmakers like Edgar, because he is prepared to commit himself, you know, to these ideas, these concepts, you know, big conceptual decisions that have 
have ramifications. And, you know, it's it's aspirational when you're working with somebody who's prepared to make calls like that and mm. always prioritize the creative. Um, he does certainly provide, you know, create an atmosphere um, in terms of archive as well, where you sort of think anything is possible. You know, our archive is 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 complicated and quite often expensive and, and that you need a lot of, there's a lot of discussion that needs to have to happen and a lot of negotiation. And, um, you know, and at no point, you know, everything was worth fighting for. It was always a case of, but wouldn't it be great if, wouldn't it be great if, let's just try it, let's just try it. And so, and I think in that process, that kicks off the, you know, the conversation. And then, you know, Kate Griffiths, who who did all of that negotiation for the archive, you know, worked at, worked wonders. And the mm-hmm. film is what it is because of, of the wonderful job they did. I mean, we were provided with a lot of material from the band themselves. Um, stills, you know, obviously some of that stuff was, you know, original. We could scan those at high resolution and... We, you know that, that they were great, and then it was a case of looking up the licenses for those, and you know working out who who, who owned those, and which they always did, and you know did a great job of. That um, we actually had a ton of, of sort of VHSs that were transferred and things like that, and these things come in as your friends, but further down the line you realise, well, we can't use those assets, and actually in the end they serve as inspiration for what. Kate and Tess would then go off and actually resource. So yeah, there was, uh, you know, it's it's quite interesting. You have to be the, the timeline has to be quite malleable, and assets need to be replaced. And one of the things that I do with Andy Love, my assistant, is uh, we always make sure at the back end of the job we control the back end. We actually do we bring all of that high, that high res material back in, and everything needs to be eye matched. Um, um, because there are no sort of time codes or anything that you can conform to, and so yeah, there were there were over two thousand um, cuts of archive in in the final edit. Um, every single one of them, I matched. Every single one of them sized, and every single one of them, you know, if it was four by three, you know, we had a universal crop that we placed upon that, and then we would do you know sort of very high res playouts of those with like an associated EDL or XML actually, and. Um, so that the conform could go as smoothly as possible and we weren't actually sending out, you know, a drive with 2,000 separate archival clips on there of various frame rates and frame sizes that all need to be interpreted away. You know, we sort of like to control that. And yeah, yeah. hopefully as a consequence, we don't get frame blending and things like that, which, you know, so hopefully it looks as good as it possibly can. Right. Do you have a favorite sequence uh, from the final film uh, that came together just through editorial that you're particularly proud of, uh, whether it was a challenging sequence because of the media or from a storytelling standpoint, you thought it came out really well? I mean, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll always love the intro sequence. You know, the intro sequence is something that, you know, you keep, you do keep working back into. I said it earlier on that, you know, it's kind of, it's a live, malleable thing. A new comment will come up and think, oh, that would be brilliant. Let's try and inject that in there. And old oh, Mike Myers, he's, he's so funny there. Let's try and find a way to make that work. Um, so, you know, that's always lovely. Um, I think the sequences at the back end are very satisfying as well for that reason. You know, it's, it's so great to sort of, you know, we love the band. We love, you know, you really do grow to love Ron and Russell. And so the back end will be sort of moving back through their career. There's one moment in there that I, I, I am quite proud of, which is the fact that I sort of spotted, you know, when, when we're actually filming um, in, in Russell's house, you can sort of see in the background there are these um, um, models of the Beatles. They're like um, they're little dolls of the Beatles. And you can sort of mm-hmm. see them in the back of the room. And, um 
And then I sort of, and I, I, I had a memory of, of seeing them in a contact sheet of the performance when they were sort of still half Nelson. And I think, well, actually, uh, you know, I think I've seen them in a, another publicity still in, in one of their houses at another point. And I was like, and then, and then I kept going back into it. And I kept, and I had this little sort of uh, select spin where I'd seen these. And then I was like, hang on a second. I think I've even seen them in the window of the Gilded Prune, you know, their, oh. their mum's shop from way back. So, and I actually pulled those together. And, and that, that little sequence of stills is very much for me because I was like, oh, that's great. I, I honestly think, you know, these are still the same models. I hope they are, that they're still the same models that have been on the piano in a half Nelson performance. They've been in the back of a publicity still earlier in their career. And they right. were in the window of the Gilded Prune. You know, it's fun. Oh, that's incredible. Great. Well, I mean, that's a great overview. I was, I was, you know, like I said, excited to hear about some of the insight that went into making this. I realize how massive of a project it is, like you said, with so many songs that were licensed, with so much footage that was licensed for it, the amount of cuts that it takes just to set up one sequence, really incredible. So thank you for your insight on that. No, absolute pleasure. It's been lovely to talk to you. What do you have uh, coming up next? Anything that you can talk about? Unfortunately, I, I, the, the project I'm on at the moment, I can't talk about. Um, I have, um, after Sparks, I worked on um, a, a feature doc on Elliot Kipchoge. Um, he's an amazing individual who um, was the first person to run the marathon in under two hours. Um, so there's a, a, a film, uh, yeah, Elliot, uh, Kipchoge, The Last Milestone, which is um, very dear to my heart. Um, it's a wonderful um film that I'm really, really proud of. Um, we all worked, again, extremely hard on it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's, that's coming out fairly soon, hopefully. Um, and then, yes, I'm on to another one now, which, unfortunately, I can't talk about. <laughs> all right. Well, hopefully down the road somewhere we can connect and talk about your work again. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. That'd be great. Excellent. Well, Paul, thank you so much for your time and your insight. I'm sure our readers are really going to appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, it's, been, it's been really great to chat. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Nice speaking with you. Thanks again. Take care.